Who is here attending for the very first time tonight? Can I see by hands, please? Yeah, okay. Great, well, I want to just personally welcome you. It's, it's always wonderful to have uh, people here exploring this fresh, and I hope you'll stay after if you have any questions, and I'd love to have a chance to say hello. Last week, the Dharma talk and the meditation was um, really exploring how do we be in this body wakefully in a culture, especially in our culture where it's so common to be living in our heads and um, in the future and in the past. How do we use this practice to be more alive and more here, more fully feeling life through our bodies? And the basic teaching, really, and we find this throughout all, really, all spiritual, mystical paths, is that, and also in most of Western psychology, is that we only heal when we include the parts of our experience uh, that we've been pushing away, which is often the unpleasantness in our bodies and the painful emotions that we don't want to feel. So tonight I'd like to explore how to bring the Buddhist teachings, these practices of mindfulness, to the world of emotions. And um, it's always a little strange to me to think, oh, in the next 40 minutes I'm going to cover emotions, (laughs) you know. It's a world. Um, But as those of you that have been here before know, really the usefulness of this time together is that you sense in your own body and heart the places that need attention and and explore that as I speak and let this time be, although you're listening a lot, to keep arriving again, keep the practice uh, of presence right through the evening. So even right now, see what happens when you have that an intent to arrive again. Go ahead, just take a few breaths and sense, okay, what is it to come home into this moment? Because all the emotions live in our body. And the only way that we come to a wise relationship with our emotional life is if we can arrive right here in this body, in this heart. So in talking, I'll cover three things. I'd like to start with talking about really how come emotions are so challenging? How come they're such the big place of suffering for so many of us? And then talk about how they're central in waking up, in spiritual awakening. It's not like we get rid of them and then we wake up. They are the stuff of awakening and then talk about how that's so. How can we, this moment, take something that's jittery or squeezing or forbidding or terrifying and make friends? And I'll be again and again using this term that I like so much, being unconditionally friendly. Because as a psychotherapist and as a Buddhist teacher and in working with my own body and heart, 
the bottom line has always been in any moment, can I befriend what's going on? Can I be friendly towards this? So first of all, what are emotions? And just to be so that we're all on the same playing field, when I talk about emotions, I'm talking about a constellation. It's kind of interdependent of thoughts, feelings, and sensations. So there's usually a story with emotions that can be very much in the background, but it's there. So we feel emotions often as a chain reaction. There might be a thought about the future, about something that we're supposed to present or do in front of other people, or something that we might fall short in, and we'll have that thought, and then we'll feel the anxiety, and it'll be a tightness in us. Or else, we might just start getting a sore throat. It'll start in our body, and then we'll have the whole story of what it's going to mean when we get a cold and miss work, and then we get anxious. It can come from different directions. Or we can be on the beltway and get cut off and get that surge very bodily of fear and adrenaline and then have thoughts about the other person and what an irresponsible jerk they are and then get into anger and on and on and on. With emotions, it's rarely simply that an emotion comes and it goes. It's rarely, we get angry, it happens, and then it's gone. Or there's a surge of fear and it's gone. Or jealousy. Or sadness. It always gets complicated. So let's look a little bit at that. It helps me to think of emotions as weather, because they are weather. There are weather systems. And if you imagine, okay, so we just had this moderate winter storm, as the Weather Bureau called it, and we might have responded glad, you know, how beautiful this fresh whiteness that's here. Or we might have been concerned, like my son's reaction was, now why couldn't this happen on a school day? (laughs) You know, it's predictable. So, but we respond, we get on the kind of shoes or coats we need, or we shovel or we don't, or whatever, but it doesn't set off a proliferation like, this is my storm, and what did I do wrong, and what did I do to deserve this, or, you know, the way we do with inner inner weather. As soon as we get afraid, it comes along with this strong sense of an I that's owning the fear, that's being victimized by something that shouldn't be afraid. Anger's the same. As soon as there's anger, it's never just anger, there's a kind of bad self that shouldn't be angry but is, or else there's a righteous self that absolutely should be angry and is, or, but there's a lot of self in it. You might just for a moment reflect in the last few days when you felt the strongest surge of inner weather, whether there was some real anxiety about something, or anger and irritation at somebody, or some real grief about a loss. And as you sense that, as you remind yourself, what's the sense of who you were in that? The who am I? Can you sense how that self gets more solid, more entrenched? 
So emotions aren't simple. They're not weather that just comes and goes. We, we add on a self. And almost always there's a sense of deficiency that comes along with any emotion. So one of the prime emotions described as shame, part of the definition of shame is what accompanies any other emotion. We feel anger and we in some way feel ashamed, we feel deficient. We feel fear, we feel ashamed. We live with an anxiety about imperfection and when we're having strong emotions we feel imperfect. I love the way one Zen teacher described it. He said, we want to be perfect like a circle drawn with a compass, but that's not necessarily perfection. The lopsided half moon, that too is perfection. And we're bent, all lopsided, with our wanting and our fears and what's going on. We all have our own particular shapes. It's imperfectly perfect, but we get really concerned about it. I remember about two years ago, the Washington Post t-shirt award was, I have occasional delusions of adequacy. Some of you will remember this from Jules Pfeiffer. I inherited my father's looks, posture, walk, opinions, manner of speech, and my mother's disdain for my father. It's hard to even begin to notice how much we move through the day with a sense of something's wrong with me. Once we start noticing it's it's a revelation and it's a great one because then we don't have to be actually believing it so much. But it's a very thick kind of trance we live in along with any of the emotions that get triggered off, there's this sinking sense of something's wrong with me. And then how do we respond? Part of this uh, chain reaction that makes emotions so challenging is we don't feel, just feel fear and then say something's wrong. Then we go ahead and set up all these behaviors to hide it in some way. So one of the first things we do is that we hide how we feel from others. And for most of us, there is a deep sense of that we're not authentic or real, because in some way the the intensity of our inner life we're not comfortable letting other people know about. One woman wrote this, she said, we never talked, my family. We communicated by putting Ann Lander's articles on the refrigerator. (laughs) So we, we cover it up. We cover up what's not supposed to be appealing or attractive, our angers, our fears. And we don't just cover them up to other people. We deny it to ourselves. I mean, we might think, oh yeah, I know that I'm an angry person or I know that I'm afraid or grieving. But so often we diminish the realness of it by saying, I shouldn't be hey, think of those other people, they've got it so much worse. This isn't so bad. I remember a couple of years ago, a friend of mine sent me this this card and I've kept it ever since, it's so good. And she had just, she had broken up from a long-term relationship, so she was having a miserable time of it. So she sent this to me and it had 
on the front a, a bent over monk young monk kind of writing on a piece of parchment something again and again and you open it up and what it says is over and over celibacy is not so bad celibacy is not so bad (laughs) again and again and again we don't always acknowledge so much that our hearts are hurting or that we feel afraid or that we feel mistreated We don't let the realness of that be true for us. The story that, I remember at a retreat a few years ago, I told it, my mother was there, and so I remember talking about it afterwards with her, a story of a family going to a restaurant, and a boy and his mother and his father, and they're making their orders, and the uh, waitress you know, takes orders from the parents and says, what do you want? He goes, well, I want a hot dog, french fries, and a Coke. And, you know, the father says, oh, no, you don't. He's having mashed potatoes and meatloaf and milk. And so she looked back, at the waitress looked back at the little boy and says, okay, hon, so what do you want on that hot dog? You know, and when she laughed, the boy turned to his parents and said, she thinks I'm real. I remember driving home from this retreat with my mother and she was, um, she told me in the car that that's exactly what it was like for her growing up, this sense of not being real, that she was supposed to be who her parents wanted her to be. So her passions about things or her fears or anxieties were all written off, like that, this isn't the real stuff, you're, you're who we think you should be or want you to be. So we get the, the sense that the real person either we were just in some way removed from because our parents or our culture said it wasn't okay to be that way. So part of the chain reaction of emotions is to then have to get rid of them. And we all do it in some way. Every one of us has ways of of trying to dull or get away from the acuteness, the discomfort because they can feel intolerable. So we use food and we use our busyness. We have all these projects that keep us kind of away from how we feel. We sleep. I went to a conference on post-traumatic stress and of course there's some times that emotions are so strong that we really need help and we need uh, pharmaceutical help. And, And it's wise. I actually am one of the Buddhist teachers that very much believes that there's a an important role at times for certain people in their lives to use medication. So that given, I'll tell you a story about this conference on post-traumatic stress and they were talking about they were talking about Prozac and the use of it in different situations. On one poster it said, I took three X-lax with my Prozac this morning. I've been on the John all day but I feel good about it. <laughs> And then another poster, and this was my favorite. It says, it said on top, if there was Prozac back then, and then it has Karl Marx saying, sure, capitalism could work if we just tweak it a bit, you know. And then it had Edgar Allan Poe, and he sees the raven and says, hello, birdie. So we all have our our strategies to numb 
what's painful and probably one of our biggest is that we strike out at others. We, we judge ourselves but we strike out at others when we're uncomfortable with ourselves. And I can guarantee you that if a person's being unfriendly in their life to other people, it's because they're unfriendly towards their emotions. They have not made peace with their emotions. So most of us spend a lot of time trying to compensate for the feeling that something's wrong. Don't underestimate how much in moving through the day it's a way to get away from the sense that something's wrong with me. I know it in myself how much getting things done is this temporary way of relieving the sense that not good enough, you know. We do it in the way we try to be productive, we do it in the way that we do favors or present ourselves to other people. A silly example from uh, Deep Thoughts, this is Saturday Night Live, so beware. (laughs) Here's a good thing to do if you go to a party and you don't know anybody. First take out the garbage. (laughs) (laughs) Then go around and collect any extra garbage that people might have, like a crumpled up napkin, and take that out too. (laughs) Pretty soon people will all want to meet the busy garbage guy. (laughs) but we do create roles for ourselves that will make other people need us or want us or like us because we have this inner life that tells us something is wrong with us. So we have these strategies and it's important, I spend some time on them right now because part of what creates so much suffering in emotions is this chain reaction of The weather comes up, anger, fear, grief, and we slap on something's wrong and then we go and start trying to numb it, cover it up, get away from it. We need to be able to cut through that and see it if we're to really come home and make peace with these very natural energies in our body and our heart. just to mention that many spiritual traditions reinforce the sense of something's wrong with us. It's very easy to read certain scriptures from any tradition on earth and get the message that if you're feeling afraid or angry or passionate, lusty, wanting, craving, that something's bad. This is not pure, this is not spiritual. So we get the message from all directions. The Buddha talked about wise understanding, it's the first of the Eightfold Path, as kind of the ground of how are we going to approach these bodies and minds and all their, the suffering that's here. And basically the understanding that allows us to befriend these emotions is to trust that they're a natural part of life and that by paying attention in the process of paying attention, we discover the depths of who we are, just in the process of paying attention. I love this um, essay, part of an essay from Clarissa Estes. She writes, in fairy tale justice, as in the deep psyche, kindness to that which seems less is rewarded by good, and refusal to do good 
for one who is not beautiful is reviled and punished. We see it in every fairy tale around. It's one of those archetypal themes. And it's the same in the great feeling states such as love. When we enlarge ourselves to touch the not beautiful, we are rewarded. If we spurn the not beautiful, we are severed from life and left out in the cold. So the not beautiful, these places in us, sometimes we call the shadow, The Buddha was a scientist in a way. I mean, he described things in a very practical manner. And there's an understanding that emotions are part of our evolutionary self. They are, every one of them, naturally intelligent. They're part of survival. They're here in order to help us to survive. And there's no question that they get tangled and blown out of proportion and cause suffering but their presence, their basic primal presence, has a reason. So what happens, for instance, with fear is we're designed to feel vigilant. In fact, our brain is designed to anticipate what's going wrong. If you think you're a worrywart, you know, you were created that way on purpose. You know, we are designed to uh, scan our environment like every other animal, for danger. And of course it gets blown way out of perspective, so we have no way of just relaxing. Some of you know, this is probably my number one favorite cartoon in the world, it's a son that's receiving a message from his Jewish mom, and it says, start worrying, details to follow, you know? But it says it all. I mean, that's us, we're kind of, already in worry mode and fill in the blanks. So we're wired. We're wired to get frightened and angry and ashamed and lusty. As it said in this poster again at the same conference, it's all about the four F's, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and reproducing. (laughs) So from a Buddhist perspective, spiritual awakening is not about getting rid of our biological reactions, getting rid of our emotions, getting rid of any part of our aliveness. We awaken as we pay attention. And Ramakrishna, one of the great Indian mystics, was asked, but how come emotions? I mean, we get so weird, you know, so crazy. And he said, emotions? Ah, they thicken the plot. One description is to consider them as manure for bodhi, for awakening. That they're the stuff that helps us wake up. My favorite image that helps me to understand emotions is from the Tibetans, which really they kind of describe emotions as deities, like everything. Everything that is in this world, all the sounds and sensations and emotions, all expressions of, of awareness and emotions are these deities that are given animal heads and sometimes they're ferocious and fierce and lusty and crazy, are beautiful, you know, but they're these animal-headed deities and they're always in the Tibetan art guarding sacred space. They're circled around the entrance to the center of the mandala, 
are the temple. And the message? We need to go through wakefully to enter sacred space, to enter this moment, to discover healing presence. So the bodhisattva, the awakening being's aspiration is to let whatever is here wake up heart and mind. May all circumstances awaken. And for most of us, the energy of every circumstance in our life that's challenging the emotional energy is usually fear and craving. Can we let our fears and our longings be right at the center of awakening. And I'd like to just invite you for a moment to go inside and again arrive here now. And because what we'll do is, if you'd like to choose an area that is emotional and strong and tugs you around and see how you can sense how you can bring this more right into the middle of your path and your heart. So we begin by just asking, what are the circumstances right now in your life where you feel that you're emotionally tugged around, where you get small and reactive? It might be circumstances in a relationship with another person where you feel offended or mistreated or guilty. Or it might be within yourself a reaction to being addictive in some way, to not being who you want to be. So sense the emotions that are in these circumstances. and just try on this aspiration, the bodhisattva's aspiration. May this circumstance, this particular circumstance, these emotions serve to awaken. How may they serve to awaken this heart-mind? Because it's also an inquiry. Can you sense how befriending this particular experience could leave you more free? Could teach you about freedom? Rumi's poem, The Guest House, is perhaps one of the most beautiful descriptions of of kind of how this aspiration can guide us. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still. Treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door. Invite them in. Be grateful. 
for whoever comes, each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So we sense the places in our life where we get most entangled. And perhaps one of the most beautiful signs of, of maturing on the path is that we begin to really trust that this isn't just bad news. This isn't something we want to write off. That the circumstances that are difficult really are perfectly designed to wake us up if we're willing to pay attention. So let's explore how we pay attention. The beginning, and this we find throughout our life, is a willingness to stop the action. Mostly we run away from difficulty, from painful emotions, from shame, from anger, from grief, mostly from fear. So we have to learn to stop, and we have to stop a lot. And probably one of the most beautiful and well-known images in all spiritual mythology is that of the Buddha who completely stopped. You know, he, he sat under the Bodhi tree, completely let go of all his movement, his actions. He just sat there, willing to meet the arrows of Mara. Mara is the guide of, god of greed and pride and hatred and delusion. And the only way he knew that he could come to peace and awakening was to stop moving and open his heart and mind to what was there. So that's what we do. We, we begin by saying, okay, so here we have these circumstances and they're painful and we're angry and we're confused and we're powerless. We pause. I've described this as the sacred art of pausing. Right in the face of what we most don't want to be with, we stop running. We pause. One Zen monk, when he was asked, well, how do you relate to fear? His response, I agree, I agree. You know, the dog's running at you, run towards it, don't run away from it. It's that kind of a sense that we just are here for what's really challenging and we're willing to feel into our body. Now for most of us that means we have to let go of all sorts of strategies we normally have for fixing and doing. One of my favorite descriptions of really how to be with the wildness of this life I found in Tom Wolfe's book, The Right Stuff, and I'd just like to read you a passage from it. So we pause and there's all this intensity that we don't really want to feel and what do we do, okay? And in the 1950s, military test pilots were flying at altitudes where ordinary laws of aerodynamics no longer applied. And what would happen is the planes would tumble end over end and they had tapes of the pilots when they were doing this tumble right when they were about to go into the final dive, the one that would kill them, 
and on these tapes the pilots would be saying, I've tried A, I've tried B, I've tried C, I've tried D, what do I do next? What do I do? They'd be you know, trying to figure out desperately how to save their lives. And at these altitudes, the more they experimented, the more they fiddled with the controls, the worse fix they got into. Okay? So the solution, and it came clear after an accident involving test pilot Chuck Yeager, he was battered unconscious, and he fell unconscious about seven miles till he hit the denser atmosphere, and then the ship could be guided, it could survive. And it was counter to all conditioning, all of our intuition. As, they, as Tom Wolfe writes, you take your hands off the controls. You sit there and do absolutely nothing. You sit there and fall. You take your hands off the controls. In fact, that was the only choice you had. And so it is with any moment of real transformation and healing. What makes it possible is we take our hands off the controls. We just free fall into whatever's here. This is another description of radical acceptance. It's like it doesn't matter what it's like right now. We stop trying to control or fight or resist. We take our hands off the controls and fall. And what we're falling into is just the experience in our body right now, right this moment. So again, just to invite you to arrive and sense what's it like in this moment to come back again and not try to control your experience but just let this life live through you as it's doing. Pleasant or unpleasant, sleepy or alert, What we find in sitting practices, it's not terribly hard to let go into our bodies if there's nothing really unpleasant going on. But if there is, it gets challenging. So let me tell you about someone I worked with that went through a very major emotional upheaval and how he worked with it. Because I, I was inspired by his process this was a man I worked with at IMS who's there for a... IMS is the Insight Meditation Society and we were doing a 10-day retreat and um, somewhere in the middle he came in for an interview and he had been really shooken up. He had been sitting and practicing and he was thinking about his mom who had just survived a stroke and very possibly this independent, lively bright, bright woman would never again be able to walk or talk. So he was, you know, reflecting on her and he was also thinking about his wife who had chronic, has chronic depression and how um, powerless he felt that the people he loved were uh, suffering in a way and he couldn't do much about it. And so he had been sitting and reflecting on this and as we guide people he asked himself, okay, so what really wants attention? And that's a very powerful question if you want to go deeper. What really wants attention? And what came up was a memory from childhood, a memory of when he was at his summer home 
and he and his, he was six, and his little brother was maybe three, and they were playing on the dock by their lake house, and his little brother fell into the water, and he stood there and screamed and panicked and froze, and his little brother drowned, and he was living his life feeling like it was his fault. So all of that memory had come up for him, and he felt this the squeeze of, of fear and powerlessness, and then he had gone numb. So when he came in to see me, it was like, it was this deep well of stuff he knew was there, and yet he was kind of cut off from it. And he said it was a very familiar feeling, that he'd be at home with his wife, and his wife would be talking about how she felt there was no hope and there was nothing to look forward to, and he felt like he was there, but he wasn't really in the trenches with her. He couldn't really, you know, he, what he would do is come up with suggestions on ways she could make her life better, which is probably familiar to many of us. So here he was now, and he knew he had all this pain there, but his mind was going a hundred miles an hour, and, you know, he couldn't let himself really touch it. It felt like it was just going to be too much. So as we do here so often, I said, okay, let's just breathe and come into this moment. And again, to do that inquiry, what most wants attention right now? What most wants acceptance? And this is an analytic, you know, this is just a feeling into your body. And he, you know, started feeling into his throat and his chest and his belly, and that's where most of our emotions live most powerfully. And he felt, started feeling this rising huge amount of of fear coming up and tried to say yes to it, because that's the practice, is to feel what's here and just agree. Okay, I agree, I agree. Feel it, stay with it. Again, he asked, you know, how big is this? And, And the fear wanted to fill the whole universe. And then he found he was fighting. A part of him wanted to say yes and just be with it, you know. And another part of him was afraid it would kill him. That feeling the fullness of what was there would kill him. So there was this pulling and all he knew in the middle of that pulling that his deepest longing was he really wanted to be free. He really wanted to surrender all of this intensity into the bigness of awareness, into what was true. So he said yes, and he let go, and he felt kind of flooded. As he described, it was like burning winds of fire just tearing him apart and burning him apart. And it was awful, and it was painful, and the other side of it was he felt bigger than the whole universe of fear. He felt like his being was the awareness that had no bounds, and he was just resting in this huge awareness, just tender towards whatever was happening. As he moved on through the rest of that day, he, as he described it, he felt like a lifetime of armor had been released just by meeting that fear and agreeing, not fighting anymore. And that's so much how it happens, that we draw close to the very thing that we've been pushing away. Especially when we feel disconnected, what is this? And you can ask, what wants attention? Can we sit down in it? 
Joko Beck describes it like sitting down on an icy couch that's perfectly designed to be molded to our form, that we absolutely sit down into what's difficult. We let the energy of our emotion pierce us to the heart. And what's so amazing is that the resistance to what we're afraid of is our resistance to each other and to everything. So when we've been willing to feel what's here, these shells start melting. When we've started to be friendly to what's inside us, we're much softer to our world. We begin to see the faces and hear the voices of the people that are around us because we're not pushing something away so hard. I got a letter from this man some months afterwards and he told me that his wife had uh, kind of reported to him, she said to him, you used to give suggestions and now what you're giving is your loving attention and that's the company I most need. And it's not like her depression melted magically away, but that's what we can give each other, is real presence, and that's what he started to give to her. Now, for this man, his challenge in meeting emotions was that he was armored and distancing from them. For some of us, we might find that's not our problem at all. Our problem is that we're completely possessed by them. We don't have trouble feeling the emotions in our body, but we're drowning in them. They've taken over. And in meditation practice, there's an art to both touching what's here, but also remembering a big enough space that we're not possessed. So if we are in that situation where it feels like our emotions are taking over, our practice is to be able to remember a larger world. One woman described it beautifully. She said when her fear was large, she would imagine that she was sitting on a park bench and her fear was next to her. And she just sensed the sky and the sounds of the birds and a bigger world and that it was there but it wasn't taking her over. One teacher, a woman, uh, American woman, was in India some years ago and she was at a monastery and she was there with a number of her friends, Westerners also. And as the days went by, she started feeling like her friends were really being disrespectful. They were talking loudly and they just weren't really um, living in a devotional way in the monastery. And she got more and more distraught. And so finally she went to their teacher and she said, you know, I can barely stomach it the way my friends are acting. It's so embarrassing and it's so awful. And he just seemed to kind of nod and go on with things. And she got even more outraged because she felt like he wasn't getting it. So she just started explaining how they were doing everything wrong and they weren't really living living the, the practices and so on. And very quietly and very gently he, he looked at her and he said, Ah, Buddha's mind is angry today, yes? When it's possessing us it feels like this is me. This is my anger, my fear. If we can remember this is the weather, 
This is Buddha mind, Buddha fear, Buddha anger. The two qualities of attention that allow us to be really present are the quality of clear contact. Can we feel right this moment and just feel in your body? Can you feel what's happening? Can you feel what's most asking for attention? Can you feel it as sensations directly? That's one quality. And then the other is, can you sense the space it's happening in? Can you listen to sound? Can you remember the world around you? Can you remember other people who are also feeling this pain? So there's pain happening, if it's pain right now, but it's in a big world and there's room for it. The bottom line is we will not have the space we need to be with difficult emotion unless we're relating in a friendly way. Our kindness is the space that can actually hold strong emotion. That we relate as if we're a parent that's being tender with a frightened child. Let me read you one last story that to me speaks of our relationship with our inner life. During the early 1900s, large numbers of infants wasted away in hospitals and children's institutions and often died from unknown causes. In many instances, the word hopeless would be entered on admission cards to describe a seriously sick baby's condition. One doctor, Dr. Talbert, was known for having uncommon success with these children when all else seemed to have failed. His approach was described by an intern. Dr. Talbot would take the child's chart and scrawl some indecipherable prescription. In most of these cases, the magic formula took effect and the child began to prosper. My curiosity was aroused and and I wondered if the famous doctor developed some new type of wonder drug. One day, after rounds, I returned to the ward and tried to decipher Dr. Talbot's scrawl. I had no luck and so I turned to the head nurse and asked her what the prescription was. Old Anna, she said. Then she pointed to a grandmotherly woman seated in a large rocker with a baby on her lap. The nurse continued, Whenever we have a baby for whom everything else we could do has failed, we turn the child over to old Anna. She has more success than all the doctors and nurses in this institution combined. The basic place of healing is a place of kindness. We can't be with the intensity of our emotional life unless we bring to it that holding and caring, like kind of that grandmotherly old Anna holding a child. We have to hold this in our life with friendship. So our practice is really to cultivate this way of arriving and really feeling what's here, kind of like breathing in and letting our being experiencing. I agree, I agree, yes, this. And that we can breathe out and feel that we're letting go into a loving awareness 
into the arms of the Buddha, our old Anna, our own awakened awareness. And that both are there, the contact and the letting go. Let's explore a little. We'll do this as a closing meditation. If you've been sitting very still and it helps stretch your legs for a moment and then come sitting up, please. So take some moments, if you'd like, to bring to mind a place in your life, circumstances in your life, where you'd like to feel some more freedom, where there are emotions that are difficult. And let this situation be very here and immediate for you. Sense what's really most painful or difficult. What makes this so difficult or hard? What's the worst thing about it? What are you afraid of? And see if you can sense in your body, in your heart, what most wants attention about this. What's the feeling right now that most needs acceptance, inclusion? Staying right in your body. See if you can just breathe in and let yourself touch that place, saying yes feeling just what's here. This is we call breathing through, that we breathe in and feel just how the emotion feels in our body. And breathe through our heart and then exhaling. Just breathe out and sense the world that's big enough to hold this. So we breathe in and touch the fear or the grief, the anger, and breathe through our hearts and out into this web of life, into our own awakened heart, into the openness of this world, the immensity of awareness. Breathing in and with a friendly attention, feeling what's here and breathing out and letting it go into awareness, into the field of being. If you feel the place that's painful in a very immediate way in your heart or your throat and you want to touch that place, that can help to connect with what's here. And we don't do this much in our culture, touching ourselves, so just to let the touch be very tender 
and it's part of communicating friendliness. It's quite radical, actually. We breathe in, and we just touch and feel where the hurt is, the pain is. So there's a sense of saying, I care about the suffering to our own being. We're establishing a friendly relationship with what's here and breathing out and offering the pain into that kindness. Breathing in and feeling what's here. Breathing out and letting go into loving awareness, knowing that there's room for all of this. Now we widen the circle of our attention by bringing to mind somebody else that we know that might be suffering in a similar way. Somebody else that might be afraid, angry, sad. And we continue to breathe and we breathe for this person now, breathing in and letting ourselves resonate with the pain of another breathing out and offering the prayer of care, offering that spaciousness, that kindness. And then opening the circle even wider now to really know these emotions are weather that are experienced by all beings, sensing all the beings in the world that feel this kind of emotional pain. So we're breathing in for all beings, becoming as big as the world, breathing in the world's pain, and breathing out and offering care. May we all be free from suffering. May we all rest in loving awareness. And for this last few moments, come back to feel the immediacy of your life, to sense again the circumstances of your life and how this emotion lives in you, this one that's so difficult. And just sense the possibility of holding this emotional life with a genuine kindness and clarity. You are the awareness, the kindness that is present with the emotion. Our freedom is knowing that we're the ocean that includes these waves. 
and we can rest in that knowing. We'll end by chanting again this mantra of connectedness. We'll chant five times. Please feel that presence both in feeling the sound and listening to the sound and letting go into the sound. Inhale deeply. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.